Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to my last episode of English Teacher Radio, English 11. Um, I'm going to do Chapter 9 tonight in one episode just because I don't know who is going to be listening to my podcast on on Wednesday night. So I'm going to put all of Chapter 9 together. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to read some highlighted passages. I'm going to try to make this episode not super long. Um, so I'm going to try to stay focused on the stuff I really want to talk about, but this is a pretty long chapter. Okay. So chapter nine begins and remember the major action has already taken place and this is all about the resolution. Okay. I want to read the opening paragraph because it, it also gives an idea of like the context in which Nick has written the book. And if you are watching the movie at any point, It'll explain what's happening in the movie. So Nick says at the opening paragraph of chapter nine, after two years, I remember the rest of that day and that night and the next day only as an endless drill of police and photographers and newspaper men in and out of Gatsby's front door, a rope stretched across the main gate and a policeman kept it, a policeman by it kept out of the curious, but little boys soon discovered that they could enter through my yard. And there were always a few of them clustered open mouthed about the pool. Someone with a positive manner, perhaps a detective, used the expression madman as he bent over Wilson's body that afternoon. And the adventitious authority of his voice set the key for the newspaper reports the next morning. Okay, so notice how Nick starts this paragraph by saying, after two years, I remember the rest of that day. So this whole book, if you guys were to go back to chapter one, he like is telling the story like, oh, I just really recall this crazy summer of 1922. In the movie, they've made it so he's like talking to a doctor or a therapist because he's been so disturbed by this that he's trying to like work out what he's been through. And that may be the case in the book, but Fitzgerald doesn't make it super clear in this edition uh, why Nick is now telling the story. But that could be one idea that works well. Clearly, something significant has happened to him this summer and he's you know, feels compelled to tell the story. That's why he's the narrator. Okay. So Nick goes on to tell us that, um, you know, the, the newspapers, the police and everybody floods Gatsby's house. And, um, remember Nick knows the whole story, but he's certainly not going to come forward and nobody else really does. So Michaelis, the, remember the guy from the restaurant, his testimony brings light to the fact that Wilson's Wilson had suspicions about his wife seeing someone because the police want to figure out who did this to this woman. Okay. So then they put it all together. And then the only person who knows that Myrtle was having an affair with Tom, like anyone of significance is Catherine, the sister. Remember she was in chapter two, but Nick says that they bring her in and she looks at the, the body in the coroner's office. And she says to the police that her sister had never seen Gatsby. Her sister was completely happy with her husband and that her sister had been into no mischief whatsoever. Um, so the sister says nothing about Mer- confirming that Myrtle had an affair. Um, and so the last paragraph, the last sentence of that paragraph says, so Wilson was, was reduced to a man, quote, deranged by grief in order that the case might remain in its simplest form. And it rested there. So that's what the police conclude. They conclude that Gatsby was having an affair with Myrtle and, Wilson killed him. Okay. I'm going to read the next paragraph. But all this, 
part of it seemed more remote and unessential. I found myself on Gatsby's side and alone. From the moment I telephoned news of the catastrophe to West Egg Village, every surmise about him and every practical question was referred to me. At first, I was surprised and confused. That is, he lay in his house and didn't move or breathe or speak hour upon hour. It grew upon me that I was responsible because no one else was interested. Interested, I mean, with that intense personal interest to which everyone has some vague right at the end. And what he's saying is like, no one is here to help to help have some sort of memorial or anything, remembrance for Gatsby. And he says, like, every person should get this. And Gatsby, it doesn't look like anyone's coming to his side except Nick. So Nick calls Daisy and um, the woman who answers the phone um, says, they're gone, they have not left an address, and they've taken a lot of bags. Um, and he's like, okay, can you tell me how to reach them? Nope, can't say. So these two have uh, deliberately disappeared. Um, Nick has this great line at the bottom of 172 where he says, I wanted to get somebody for him. I wanted to go into the room where he lay and reassure him. I'll get somebody for you, Gatsby. Don't worry. Just trust me and I'll get somebody for you. Then he tries to go get Meyer Wolfsheim. He calls him up. He calls him up. Um, oh, he's not here. He's not here. Um, so then he tries to go to Wolfsheim or he, he tries again to get Wolfsheim and then Wolfsheen sends him a letter. The letter says, Dear Mr. Caraway, this has been one of the most terrible shocks of my life to me. I can hardly believe that it was true at all. Such a mad act that man did should make us all think. I cannot come down now as I am tied up in some very important business and cannot get mixed up in this thing right now. If there's anything I can do a little later, let me know in a letter by Edgar. I hardly know where I am when I hear about a thing like this and I'm completely knocked down and out. Yours truly, Meyer Wolfsheen. Um, and then he says, let me know about the funeral, etc. Do not know his family at all. So Wolf Sheem is not coming to the funeral. <sighs> then we have this sort of twist in chapter nine on 175. It says it was on that third day that a telegram signed Henry C. Gatz arrived from a town in Minnesota. It said that it said only that the sender was leaving immediately and to postpone the funeral until he came. So Gatsby's dad comes to the funeral. It was Gatsby's father, a solemn old man, very helpless and dismayed, bundled up in a long, cheap ulster against the warm September day. So Gatsby's dad shows up, and he's a, a very poor-looking man with a long beard. And um, he comes in the house, and he says, you know, I saw it in the newspaper, and I, I started to head east right away. And then... Um, he eventually says to Nick, well, I'm all right now. Where have they got Jimmy? And to me, like, it's just such a 180 when you hear the dad say, where have you got Jimmy? Like, we've known him the whole time as Jay Gatsby. It, that's not what his parents call him. It's not his name. Um, and I just think it's an interesting line. Okay, so um, Mr. Gatsby sees him and Nick accidentally calls him Mr. Gatsby. And he says, Gats is my name. And I, I don't know why I think that's, I think that's an important line because Mr. Gats, even though he is poor and he clearly does not really belong in this world of New York city, he's not ashamed of himself. And Gatsby obviously did have this strong element of shame about being poor. 
Okay. So then Nick gets a call and, um, it's Clipspringer. And if you guys remember Clipspringer, they nicknamed him the border because he spent the night all the time at Gatsby's house. And he was the guy who like randomly played the piano when Daisy was there. And so Clipspringer calls and Nick's like, Oh, thank goodness. He sent Nick says he's relieved. We're going to have a friend at Gatsby's grave. But then Nick notices that like Clipspringer doesn't really care when Nick tells him the time of the funeral. So he says, Nick says, wait a minute. How about saying that you'll come? And then Clip Springer says, well, the fact is, the truth of the matter is that I'm say, staying with some people up here in Greenwich, and they rather expect me to be with them tomorrow. In fact, there's a sort of picnic or something. Of course, I'll do my very best to get away. And then Nick is obviously very put off by that comment. And then Clip Springer adds, what I called up about was a pair of shoes I left there. I wonder if it'd be too much trouble to have the butler send them. You see, they're my tennis shoes, and I'm sort of helpless without them. My address is care of BF click. I didn't hear the rest of the name because I hung up the receiver. So Clip Springer calls in to say, oh, I'm not really sure if I'll make it to the funeral, but can you send me my shoes back? Nick comments right after this conversation. After that, I felt a certain shame for Gatsby. One gentleman to whom I telephoned implied that he got what he deserved. Um, so Nick is sort of, you know, in this tough spot. So the next day he goes up to New York to try to get Wolfsheim. Um, and the secretary is not very nice and doesn't let him in. And then finally Wolfsheim appears. The text on 179 says, in a moment, Meyer Wolfsheim stood solemnly in the doorway, rubbing both hands. He drew me into his office remarking in a reverent voice that he was, it was a sad time for all of us and offered me a cigar. And then he um, has this like brief little memory with Nick. And he says, my memory goes back to when I first met him. He says, uh, a young man just out of the army and covered with medals he got in the war. He was so hard up. He had to keep on wearing his uniform because he couldn't buy some regular clothes. First time I saw him when he was, come into Weinbrenner's pool room on 43rd street and ask for a job. He hadn't had anything to eat in a couple of days. Um, and so then at the end of this conversation, um, Nick says, now he's dead. I said, after a moment, you were his closest friend. So I know you'll want to come to his funeral this afternoon. And Wolfsheen says, I'd like to come then. Well, come then. And then Wolfsheen says, um, I can't, I can't get mixed up in it. When a man gets killed, I never like to get mixed up in it anyway. I keep out. When I was a young man, it was different. If a friend of mine died, no matter how, I struck with him. I stuck with him in the end. You may think that's sentimental, but to me, but, but I mean it to the bitter end. Um, and then Nick basically realizes that Wolfsheim is not going to come to the funeral. So he gets back to the house and... Mr. Gatz is there and um, he says, Jimmy sent me this picture. He took out his wallet with trembling fingers. Look here. And the picture is a photograph of Gatsby's mansion that he had sent back to his father. And I don't know, there's just something really sentimental about meeting his father and knowing that Gatsby continued to do things for his parents and keep a correspondence with his parents, even though he was living this completely different life in New York City. Gatsby's a complicated character. Like, just as Nick says, he's a lot of things, but he's not a bad person in, in many ways. Um, okay. He says, 
Mr. Gatz says, Jimmy sent it to me. I think it's a very pretty picture. It shows up very well. Um, and then Nick says, Hey, had you, had you seen him lately? And, um, Mr. Gatz says he come out to see me two years ago and bought me the house I live in now. So Gatsby did use part of his money to make sure he could help his parents. Of course, we was broke up when he run off from home, but I see now that there was a reason for it. He knew he had a big future in front of him. And ever since he made a success, he was very generous with me. So Gatsby has consistently tried to help out his dad after making a lot of money. Um, then Mr. Gatz takes out this book and it's kind of like this journal or this book where Gatsby kept notes on his life. And the first one was, or um, Nick opens to an entry that says September 12th, excuse me, 1906. And it, it gives the schedule for the day, rise from bed, dumbbell exercises, study, electricity, work, baseball, sports. Like he's really trying hard to like self-improve even at this very young age. And then the general resolves, no wasting time at shafters or no smoking or chewing, bathe every day, every other day, read one improving book on our magazine per week, save five, crossed off $3 per week. And then the last one says, be better to parents. So even though Gatsby ran off, even though he abandoned his identity, he still had this love for his parents and he tried to help them all the way to the end. Um, Mr. Gatz comments, I come across this book by accident, said the old man. It just shows you, don't it? And then Nick says, it just shows you. And it really does. For all of his faults, Gatsby was this tremendously ambitious guy who was tremendously ambitious when he was 10 years old. And also he loved his parents dearly, even though, you know, we never got to really see that side of him. Okay. Then Nick narrates a little before three, the Lutheran minister arrived from Flushing and I began to look involuntarily out the windows for other cars. So did Gatsby's father. And as the time passed and the servants came in and stood waiting in the hall, his eyes began to blink anxiously and he spoke of the rain in a worried and uncertain way. The minister glanced several times at his watch. So I took him aside and asked him to wait for half an hour, but it wasn't any use. Nobody came. So, I mean, you guys, this, this ending is so many things, but, you know, Gatsby, who really was a good guy in the end, even though, you know, he did some illegal stuff, he gives so much to other people. And in the end, nobody shows up for his funeral. What does that mean? I'm going to keep reading. Okay. So then after the funeral, they get in the car and they go to the cemetery and um, they get out and it's raining. And in the rain, they realize that another person has arrived and someone's splashing at there's someone splashing after Nick and the soggy ground. And he says he looks over. It was the man with owl eyed glasses whom I'd found marveling over Gatsby's books in the library one night, three months before. So remember, we call this guy Old Owl Eyes, and he wears these glasses. And remember, T.J. Eckelberg wears glasses, and these two people, two images are potentially symbols, right? They look down or look into these worlds. Eckelberg, of course, is in the Valley of Ashes, and Old Owl Eyes is, of course, in Gatsby's world, and they see the truth of things. They don't see the facade, but they see the truth. So at the cemetery, at the end of all of this, 
old Owlai says, um, he says to Nick, I couldn't get to the house, he remarked, meaning like I couldn't get to the funeral. And Nick says, neither could anybody else. Meaning like, yeah, you didn't show up, but nobody else, nobody showed up. And old Owlai says, go on. Like, no way. He started, why my God, they used to go there by the hundreds. And, and that's an extremely sad and true fact. People just took and took and took. And then old Owlai takes off his glasses and wipes, wiped them again outside and in. And then old Owlai says, the poor son of a bitch. And this is really where like Gatsby ends up. You know, he does this crazy climb to the top and it's fast and furious and it has all the elements. But then in the end, he just crashes and burns and nobody's there for him. Okay. So we have two people that we need to meet with. First, we have to meet with Jordan Baker. So this is on page 185. Um, Nick says that he wanted to leave things in order and not just trust that obliging and indifferent see to sweep my refuse away. So he says he saw Jordan Baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together and what had happened afterward to me. And she lay perfectly still listening in the chair. So she's just sitting there listening to Nick talk. And then <laughs> after Nick's done talking, it says, when I had finished, she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man. And then Nick notes, I doubted that though. There were, I doubted that though. There were several she could have married at a nod of her head, but I pretended to be surprised. Then she has this conversation where she says to him, nevertheless, you did throw me over, said Jordan suddenly. You threw me over on the telephone. I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, and I felt a little dizzy for a while. We shook hands. Oh, and do you remember, she added, a conversation we once had about driving a car, and Nick says, why not exactly? You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver. Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I? I mean, it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess. I thought you were a rather honest and straightforward person. I thought it was your secret pride. I'm 30, I said. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor. She didn't answer, angry and half in love with her and tremendously sorry. I turned away. So he cuts it all off with Jordan in the end. And, and this whole thing about cars is important because cars is a major theme in the book. The car does the killing. Um, Gatsby's car is a symbol of status. Nick's car is a symbol of, not Nick, um, Tom's car is a symbol of status. And then we also get this thing where we get the idea that Jordan's a bad driver. We're going to get one more mention of cars right here in this last scene that is really important to us. Okay, so then Nick says he's still in New York, and one late afternoon he saw Tom Buchanan on Fifth Avenue. And Nick sees him, and all of a sudden... In the midst of Nick not knowing exactly what to do, Tom looks over and sees him, and he holds out his hand for a handshake. But Nick doesn't Nick doesn't um, reciprocate. He doesn't want to shake his hand. So Tom says, what's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? And Nick says, yes, you know what I think of you. And then Tom says, you're crazy, Nick. Crazy as hell. I don't know what the matter. what's the matter with you. So Nick asks, Tom, what did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word, and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. You know Tom is always, like, grabbing people. I told him the truth, he said. He came to my door. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and when I sent downstairs words that we weren't 
and he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. He had his hand on a revolver in his pocket, and every minute he was in the house. He broke off defiantly. What if I did tell him? That fellow had it coming to him. He threw dust into your eyes like he did into Daisy's, but he was a tough one. He ran over Myrtle like he'd run over a dog and never even stopped the car. Nick says, there was nothing I could say except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. Um, Nick then says, I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed things up and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. Woo. Okay. That sentence right there, like that is the characteristic of the wealthy that F. F. Scott Fitzgerald is trying to get across to us. And I like that word smash because it's like they use the car to smash, right? Like they use these big, expensive, one of a kind things that only they can get and nobody else can. And they ruin other people's lives with them. Okay. I'm going to read that sentence again. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess. They clean up the mess they made. Nick goes on to say, I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt I, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then he went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or perhaps a pair of cuff buttons, rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. So, you know, it's like Tom's like, ugh, moving on. You know, I don't need, I don't need any Nick and any Nick in my life telling me the truth about things. And I just wonder to what extent we would find these characteristics of the super wealthy to be true in real life. Um, this past week, it has been interesting, like on social media, obviously with people protesting about police injustice and people saying, you know, black people in this country get the police called on them, get arrested, get beaten up, get killed in some instances for, for just living their lives, for not doing anything wrong. And then a lot of people have also been mentioning how the really wealthy people in this country, they do these horrible things and then they get, um, then they somehow make it go away. It's unbelievable. And sadly, you know, this book was written a hundred years ago and we still have this really awful lack of a justice system because all week I've been reading about people referencing things that wealthy people have done that they have not had to pay for in any way. They didn't have to go to jail. They didn't have to, <clears throat> you know, they didn't have to have any type of punishment for it. And, um, it's very, very sad. Okay. Let's get back to the book. Um, Okay, now this part, I will have to read all the way to the end. So he goes home and um, on his last night in New York City, because remember, he's going to go back to the Middle West. He says, on the last night with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. I love that line. On the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly alone along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Okay, now here we go, guys. On this last page, we're going to get like a comment about 
the world, not the world, but America. Okay. So just stay with me because we have a big picture. The, the camera here in this last scene is zooming out. It's not just Gatsby's house, but it's the whole Long Island Sound. Okay. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. As the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. It vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath and the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. Okay. So as he's looking at the Long Island Sound in the, in the evening, he's wondering what it was like for these sailors to come over from Europe and land on this shore. And he says, you know, they must have been full of wonder. And I want you to consider, like, how does that notion of these explorers arriving, how does that really parallel the concept of Jay Gatsby, right? Both have these huge dreams and both believe that this land called America, or what came to be called America, um, was the place where those dreams could come true. But the book is really about the disenchantment of those dreams in America, which may seem kind of depressing, but at the same time, I think it really takes the facade or the, the sparkle away from this sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, cliche, rags to riches story that so many of us um, have seen so many times in movies and in books. And he kind of says, like Nick, or I think I think I should say, F. Scott Fitzgerald is kind of saying, like, it's not what you think it is. It's not what you think it is. The higher you go, the more morally corrupt you get. The higher you go, the more childish these people behave. And that's part of the disenchantment. Okay, back to the last paragraph, or last three. As I sat there brooding on the, un, on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He didn't know that he, it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. What does it all mean, everyone? So you want to think about the ending of this book, again, as a type of disenchantment, where Nick really compares all of us, all of us Americans, to Jay Gatsby. And he talks about at this end here when he says, you know, he arrives and he's so full of wonder about this dream that he picks the green light and he sort of names that as the symbol for his dream. But then Nick says he did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city. You know, it's like, this idea where how sad is it that 
people in this country name a dream, go to pursue the dream, but we all know they're not going to make it. Um, it says, get to be believed in the green light. And then he adds, it eluded us then, but that's no matter tomorrow. So even though it eludes us, even though we can't get it right, like this is the story of everyone's life in this country. Even though we know we'll never get it tomorrow, we will run faster, stretch out our arms. And then he says one fine morning and then it cuts off. And the last line of the book is, so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. There's a lot of things that you can say about this last line, but to me, and I'm not saying I'm the authority on this, but hey, you're listening to my podcast and you probably want to know what the last line means. To me, I always think he's trying to say, it's not a Gatsby thing, it's a we thing. It's an American thing that we keep going against this current of social inequality, all of this stuff but we're born back ceaselessly into the past. I don't know that it's like an American pride moment right there. I think it's more like an American reality moment, which is really what this book is about. Well, I wish I could end on a hopeful note, guys, but I just want to say thanks for listening. I think you've all done a great job, and I hope you really enjoyed this book. And if you haven't watched the movie yet, now is the time. Okay. Email me if you have any questions. And uh, if you haven't heard me say this 10,000 times already, you better come see me in the fall. All right, guys. Have a great night.